Okay, good morning, and um, thank you for this opportunity to go through part two of the book of Philippians. Uh, Pat introduced the book last week, um, so I won't give a big introduction, because he's done that. <laughs> um, all I will say is that it was the first church that Paul planted, it was in northern Greece, and um, it was the only church that supported him with money. Um, in fact, they sent a man to him whose name was Epaphroditus, carrying a lot of money so that he could buy food because he was under house arrest in Rome. He was chained up to a Roman soldier. He couldn't cook very well, you know, single guy. And they sent this man, Epaphroditus, with money and to cook his meals. And I just want to say this before we start not to do with this, but John, our, in our, our elder, has been to Africa and he has gone fixing tractors. And he flew, he arrived last night, is that right? Yeah. Well, did you know that in the Bible, the word apostle, the word apostle does not just mean big church planters, big leaders. The word apostle can mean someone sent to do a job. Epaphroditus is called an apostle. But he didn't plant the church. And John Church, I just want to say, John Church is an apostle. There you are, you can tell him that, Ruth, when you get home. He was sent out to do a job, and he's done it. Praise God. Now, Epaphroditus, when he turned up at Paul, who was arrested, he told them that the Philippians were really worried about him. They were really worried about him. And actually, this is what happened, if you can... Get the next slide. Is that working? No. Can you do the next slide? Yeah, just press. Why is it not working? <coughs> anyway, a picture will come up in a minute. They had got the wrong end of the stick. The wrong end of the stick. You know that phrase when someone gets the wrong end of the stick? Just to make you laugh, do you know where that phrase comes from, the wrong end of the stick? Apparently it comes from Roman toilet culture. Because apparently in Roman days you would all sit in a row and do your business together in a communal toilet. And you were chatting to each other whilst you were, I can see Esther not approving, uh, chatting whilst you were doing your business and they had a stick with a sponge on the end to clean yourself. And if you were distracted, you would pass the stick and someone might pick up the wrong end. As you can imagine, it's not pleasant. But anyway, the, the Philippians had got the wrong end of the stick because they had heard all the stuff that had happened to Paul. He'd had a catalogue of bad disasters. And then they saw that he was under house arrest and they thought, this is a restriction of a gifted apostle. This is an end, a tragic end, to a brilliant career. Paul wants to go out preaching and planting churches. This is an outrageous justice against a Roman citizen, because Paul was a Roman citizen. And they thought to themselves, and Epaphroditus told him, they thought, you know, this is how they're thinking about you, Paul. They thought he must be depressed. He must be cracking up. He must, things must be getting on top of him. He must be thinking, oh, what? Look at God, you know, like Hardy says to Laurel in Laurel and Hardy, you know, look at the fine mess you got me into. God, have you forgotten me? 
And to add on to that, Paul is possibly facing a beheading. You know, the Romans would behead you if they thought you were guilty with a sword. It was quick. But, you know, the Philippians were thinking he's probably quite worried about dying. Now, when Epaphroditus was there, he became ill. And one or two Philippians had heard about that too. So what Paul decided to do was this. He said, I'm going to send a letter back to that church. I'm going to send Epaphroditus back so they know he's okay. And in the letter, I'm going to correct them. You boys, you got the wrong end of the stick. His letter was a letter of thankfulness. And it was a prayer letter. And the good thing about a prayer letter is that you have to correct what needs praying for. Because, you know, I'm sure they were praying like this. Look, the prayer meeting. They were like, oh, Lord, Paul must be so depressed. Help him. Oh, God, strengthen him, encourage him. He must be so low. Oh, Lord, Lord, please change the judge's mind. Don't let them chop his head off. Please let him out. Please let him out. Oh, Lord, amen. Isn't that how we would pray? If we heard that Tim had been arrested in, I don't know, the police station and they were going to ex- possibly execute him, I mean... <laughs> I'm sure you wouldn't be praying, yeah, Lord, get rid of him. No, you'd be praying, oh, Lord, oh, help him, help him, help him, help him. But then this letter arrived with Epaphroditus, and this is what the prayer meeting the next day became. Glory. Rejoicing. Because when they got the letter, they, they, hang on a minute, we got the wrong end of the stick. Paul's saying, my circumstances are fine. Yeah, I'm in prison. But actually, he saw setback as an opportunity for the gospel. He saw suffering as an opportunity for the gospel. His letter was full of joy and thankfulness. And he's not afraid to die. He says, I don't mind if I die. He said, what? Are you nuts? I don't mind if I die because this is what the truth is. If I die, I'm going to gain a lot more of Christ. I'm going to go into his immediate presence because of the cross I'm going to be rich as anything if I die. In fact, it's more of a sacrifice if I hang around for you guys. It's actually a sacrifice if I don't die and I stay here to benefit you. Don't pray for that. Don't pray, get me out of prison. Don't pray, don't let me die. This is what you've got to pray. Pray that I will honour Christ now. Pray that I will honour him and glorify him. Pray that I will make him magnificent to these Romans. Pray that if I die, I will die gloriously. Pray that I'll be brave and do my duty and not let the Lord down. All his concern was that he will honour Christ in the situation and that the gospel spreads. And they were like... So the prayer meeting afterwards became like this. You know, the Philippian jailer... You know the Philippian jailer? He was probably in that pyramid. He'd go, oh Lord, we've been so stupid. He was in jail before here, and look what happened. Oh, praise God, you've put him in prison. Hallelujah, he's shown the gospel. This is great. And Lord, if he dies, that's glorious. He's going to go to heaven, be with you. This is amazing. Oh, but Lord, please, a little bit selfishly, please, could he, could he stay around a bit because we love him? He could help us. But Lord, it's amazing. Glory, glory, glory. We thank you, we thank you, we thank you for the pause in prison. What a complete change. And what I'm trying to say is this. None of us are going to be like the Apostle Paul, but sometimes we get the wrong end of the stick when things happen to us or to missionaries. We think, 
oh, it's all, you know, Marvin the Android. Have you ever seen Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the depressed robot? It's all doom and gloom. It's all gone wrong. God's forgotten us. The devil's won. God had a moment of divine forgetfulness. Oh, no. The truth is, God's got his hand. He's sovereign over us, as we sang. And they were like, the prayer meetings after that were probably very positive. Right. Let's just read the passage we're studying today. Um, it's Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 30. At the moment, I'm going to just read down to verse 25, and then I'm also um, going to read probably 28, 29, just for time. I can't comment on every verse because it would take too long. But let me just read to you, this is from the Good News Version. So Paul is writing a corrective letter to correct their thinking and show them what they should pray for. He is showing them what he's not concerned about and what he is concerned about, and he's correcting their thinking. He says this, I want you to know, my friends, that the things that have happened to me have really helped the progress of the gospel. As a result, the whole palace guard and all the others here know that I am in prison because I am a servant of Christ. And my being in prison has given most of the believers more confidence in the Lord so that they grow bolder all the time to preach the message fearlessly. Of course, some of them preach Christ because they're jealous and quarrelsome, and others from genuine goodwill. Those who preach from goodwill do so from love, because they know that God has given me the work of defending the gospel. The others do not proclaim Christ sincerely, but from a spirit of selfish ambition. They think that they will make more trouble for me while I am in prison. It does not matter. I am joyful about it as long as Christ is preached in every way possible, whether from right or wrong motives, and I will continue to be joy-filled because I know that by means of your prayers and the help which comes from the Spirit of Jesus Christ, I shall be set free. He kind of knew that he was going to be given back to them and not executed that time. My deepest desire and hope is that I shall never fail in my duty, and that at all times, and especially right now, I shall be full of courage, so that with my whole being I shall bring honour to Christ, whether I live or die. For what is life? To me, to live is Christ. Death is gain, and will bring only more of Christ. But if by continuing to live here I can do worthwhile work, then I'm not sure which I should choose. I'm pulled in two directions. I want very much to leave this life and go to be with Christ, which is a far better thing. But for your sake, it is much more important I remain alive. I'm sure of this, and so I know that I will stay. I will stay on with you all to add to your progress and joy in the faith. What a man. <laughs> he wasn't depressed. He was loving it. And you have to know that God can use situations for his glory in which you can honour Christ. And on the surface, it looks really bad, but actually it can have unexpected results. Now, let me just show you 
Paul, what was he not bothered about? You know, do you remember the Catherine Tate comedy series um, where she goes, I ain't bothered. Do you know that? Look on my face. Does my face look bothered? I ain't bothered. Paul wasn't bothered by what had happened to him. All right? Now, the bad things from his past. And before we look at the passage, I just want to say there were bad things that Paul himself had done before he was a Christian. You know, he had killed people. He had killed Stephen. He had him stoned. He couldn't bring Stephen back. And, of course, that brought remorse. But instead of moping around and saying, oh, I'm a failure, oh, what did I do? Try, crying over spilt milk. What he did was he said, well, Lord, you've forgiven me in grace, and I'm going to press on and serve you. I'm not going to live dwelling on my past. And some people spend their whole life living in the memories of their past sin failure. Paul, Paul, was, Paul couldn't bring Stephen back. He probably regretted it. He tried to put things right where he could. He probably visited the family and tried to love them. But he didn't live in the past. You know where Paul lived? might sound a bit spiritual, but he lived in Christ. Now, I know that might sound a bit hard to get your head around. He lived in Christ. He didn't live in his past. There's a story in the Bible of Jesus setting a man who's full of demons free. And this man lives among the tombs. You know that story? Well, the name tomb, I've said this before here, I think, can also mean memorials. He lived among the memorials. And there are people today that live in their memories. Look what happened to me. Oh, what I did. And Paul said, I live in Christ. Yes, that happened, but I'm going to press on through grace. And in the, in the book of the Philippians, it's something like 48 times it talks about being in Christ Jesus. Something like 34 times it talks about being in Christ. Something like 50 times it talks about living in the Lord. So, do you live in your past? Don't. Live in Christ. So, he did not dwell among the memories of shame or regret. But this is another thing that didn't bug him. He didn't think about it. He did not worry about all the bad things that had happened to him recently. What other people had done to him. Maybe people have done things to you. And you keep thinking back. I believe God wants to set you free from that. Maybe you need prayer. But God doesn't want you living in the past. Now, what had happened to Paul recently? You'd be amazed. You know, could it get any worse? <laughs> this is what happened. Let me just read you a list. This is over the last kind of year or so. He'd been falsely accused in Jerusalem, number one, because he brought a man into the temple and they said, you can't bring him in here. And they tried to lynch him. All right? That's number one. Ten things. Number two, he was forced to appeal to Caesar for justice. You know why? Because the Jews were corrupting the court. The Jews were saying, you know, get this man in. So he said, I'm going to go to someone higher than you. I'm going to go to Caesar. He was forced to do that against his own people. Number three, there was an assassination plot to kill him. Has anyone ever plotted to kill you? We, we did it with Mark once, but it didn't work. No, <laughs> not really. But no, with, they, they tried to, 40 men said they're going to fast until Paul is dead. They're not going to eat until they kill him. I mean, how's that for being popular? 
He was kept unfairly, number four, he was kept unfairly in a jail by a governor called Felix. Sounds like a cat, doesn't it? And there's another guy called Festus. Sounds horrible, doesn't it? But these guys kept him in jail unfairly. Do you know why? Because they were hoping he would give them money. If you pay me, Paul, we'll let you out. He was kept unfairly in jail also because they wanted to please the Jews. They said, look, keep that man in prison. They go, okay then. Injustice. People trying to kill him. Another thing that happened to him, he had been shipwrecked. Do you know that story? Paul ended up in the ocean for a whole day and a whole night. Have you ever been stuck in the sea, swimming around for a whole day and a whole night? 24 hours. Pretty horrible. Then when he finally got to land, he got bitten by a poisonous snake. Anyone being bitten by a snake today? No? Good. <laughs> um, then he was chained up for house arrest, which is where he is now. Chained up for house arrest. But it went on for two years. And he hadn't gone to trial, and he was uncertain what might happen to him. Any minute now, someone could walk through the door and chop his head off, and he'd be in his grave next week. And then finally, to crown it all, Epaphroditus got sick, so he sent him off. So now he's lonely. So you've got lonely, injustice, suffering, everything. And Paul's rejoicing with joy and thankfulness. You think, is this guy crazy or what? But you know, he saw his past with the eyes of faith. In verse 12, it says, I want you to know the things that have happened to me have helped the progress of the gospel. Do we believe in a sovereign God or do we believe in a God who's out of control? The next thing he didn't bother, worry about was his present. Paul had a rather different view of the bad things in his present circumstances. Now, this I find hilarious. You're going to hopefully enjoy this. What seems like a hindrance, sometimes under God, can be an opportunity. Because he was chained up to a Roman soldier. You know, it was, it was called a linking chain. It was a one-metre chain sort of this sort of distance from Pete. And the Romans saw everything he did. It was a four-hour shift or an eight-hour shift, I read. Now, imagine being chained to an unbeliever your whole life. They see everything you do. They see every time you get stressed. They hear all your prayers. They see you 24-7. I mean, what a challenge. And these guys were chained up to Paul, but the thing is, Paul was so full of Christ, you know, it was like being chained to Jesus. And they didn't really stand much of a chance. Because they saw him praying, okay, maybe put up with that. They heard him preach the gospel, and this is the hilarious thing. They couldn't tell him to shut up. He was a Roman citizen. The rules were, if you're under house arrest, you can't tell them to be quiet. That is, I read that, it's actually one of the rules. You can't beat them into silence. You have to listen to what they say, because he's a Roman citizen. So he had a captive audience. These poor guys, they were ordered to be chained to him. He had, I'm going to preach to you for eight hours. And you can't beat me into silence. Unless I say something nasty about Caesar, then maybe, but you can't, you can't. It was the rules. So they had to be stuck there listening to him preach, hearing him pray, seeing him write scripture, hearing him visit people, or let them visit him rather, they didn't stand much of a chance, really, and Paul loved it. He said, I've got a captive preaching audience, and they can't shut me up. And the other thing is this, and this is really, really, I find it hilarious. You know, God's sense of humour and God's wisdom. Have you ever seen Blackadder with Baldrick 
And Baldrick says, my lord, I have a cunning plan. Do you know that? A cunning plan. Well, God had a very cunning plan. Because these people, these particular Roman soldiers, were the palace guard. It says that, in the, if you study the Bible in the background, the palace guard. It wasn't any old Romans. They were the palace guard, known as the Praetorians. And these people were very, very powerful at the heart of Roman Empire. And they had the power to even topple Caesar if they didn't like him. You think Caesar was top dog? No. The palace guards were really the top dogs. Because there was a Caesar called Caligula. I have to go and read this. Caligula, who wasn't very popular, and the Praetorian Guard bumped him off. They poisoned him, and they replaced him with another Caesar called Claudius. And there's a TV program called I, Claudius. It kind of mentions. And the point I'm making is he was chained up to the very heart of power in the Roman Empire. The Philippians were thinking, man, you're stuck in jail. He was saying, this is amazing. And the thing was this also. These Praetorians, when they retired... They became mayors of cities. They became leaders of villages. So, and a lot of them became Christians with Paul. And what I'm trying to say is, what can appear like a hindrance, God can use. The other thing to say about these um, Praetorian guards were that they were always... Um, oh, sorry, let me get the point. Um... Yeah, that was what I wanted to say. They were the people who basically were at the centre of power. Now, if Paul had gone into Rome and this hadn't happened to him, the palace would have ignored him. They would have ignored him. They might have crucified him as a Jewish preacher. But it's like, how do you get the attention of Buckingham Palace? How would you get the attention of the House of Commons? How would you do it? You have to get in there, don't you? And this is what happened to him. He got in there and he had this amazing... Uh, influence. So, joy and thankfulness on his present circumstances. Let's move on. By his reaction in this cell, Paul began to impress the Philippian church when, when they got the letter back. They were scared. You know, this is not true. The Philippians were scared because they were living in Philippi. And Philippi was a place where the Roman, you had to be patriotic and Roman. It was a Roman colony. Pat may have told you this last week. And it's like the very centre of Roman patriotism. And they worship the emperor as the Lord. The emperor, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. So for Christians at Philippi to go around saying Jesus is Lord, it's a bit scary. But when they hear that Paul, at the very centre of the government, is saying Jesus is Lord to these people, they get bold. And God wants us to have boldness in sharing that Jesus is Lord. Okay, we haven't got people out there saying Caesar is Lord, but we can be scared, can we not? God is calling us to be bold. And when they heard that he was like that, it says in verse... um, Yeah, verse 14. And my being in prison has given the brothers and sisters more confidence in the Lord, so they grow bolder all the time to preach the message fearlessly. 
Let's go back to Tim again. Imagine if your pastor, Tim, was stuck in a police station and he was getting interrogated and maybe beaten, but you heard that he's witnessing and you heard that policemen were getting saved. What would it do to you? <laughs> would you just go, oh, well, serves him right? Or would you think, well, hang on, if Tim's doing it, then I'm going to do it. And this is what happened. It had a great effect. The next thing. Paul had this view that suffering, we see it as just pure bad, but he could see it as privilege. You know? Um, Paul the sufferer was still witnessing, even though he was suffering. He was still, Paul the sufferer was still witnessing for Christ. Um, he did not see suffering as God forgetting him. God, what are you doing? He did not see suffering as a dismissal from service. You know, he could say, I was looking forward to so many years of being fruitful, and now look at me. He did not see suffering as the devil winning. He saw it as an opportunity for the gospel, a place of duty, a setting for service, and a task appointed. And it also brings God glory. You know the phrase Paul, he said he was an ambassador well, he said he was an ambassador in chains, but he's still an ambassador. And when you go into situations where things are tough, you are still God's ambassador, even if things are difficult. But he says it was privilege. Uh, have you ever thought of suffering as privilege? Verse 29, it says, For you have been given the privilege of serving Christ, not only by believing in him, but also by suffering for him. Privilege is suffering. Now, I want to tell you a quick story about this woman here. Does anyone know who that is? Looks like Corrie Ten Boom, but no, it's not Corrie Ten Boom. No. It's, her name is Helen Rosevere, and she was a missionary to the Congo in the 1960s, and I used to live in a flat where her brother was the landlord. So he told me stories about his sister, and she also wrote a book called Living Sacrifice. It's very good. Recommend it. By Living Sacrifice by Helen Rosevere. But she was in the Congo serving the Lord as a nurse slash doctor, helping people. And then the Congo rebels came at night. They beat her with a rifle butt. They smashed the rifle butt into her face and they raped her. And she remembers standing after being raped and beaten with rifle butts, standing in the jungle at night, saying, God, God, where are you? Why? And God spoke to her a word. He said, privilege. What? He said, these are my sufferings, not yours. And she thought, yeah, but I've been raped. Anyway, they then put them in a truck and took them to a house in the Congo. It was like a secure house where they put all these women, all these other missionaries and other Congo women, put them all in, a lot of them had all been raped and beaten. They're all put in this house and locked up. And in that house, there was one woman weeping. And Helen, being a Christian, went to her and talked with her. And it turned out that she was so heartbroken that she just was crying out, she said, do you want to come to Jesus? And she led her to Jesus. This is a true story. She led her to Jesus in a corner of this house, in a kind of alcove. And as they did the prayer, as she prayed with this woman, Lord, I pray for this lady that she will receive Jesus. And the, the woman said, 
Amen, I do. And as the woman said, Amen, I do, all the other women in the house said, Amen, I do. The whole lot, and I've met the landlord, so I know this is true, the whole lot got saved. They all became Christians. Through horrific suffering, which was, in quotes, privilege. I don't know what you think of that story, but don't despair when things seem to go wrong. Now, Paul also had a different view on his future. So we've talked about his past. He didn't view it like the Philippians. We've talked about his present. He didn't view it as just, God, what's happened? Where have you gone? And this future, he wasn't too worried about his future in two respects. We read in, the, in this verse that, in, in, sorry, in verse um, 15, he says there are others preaching because they're jealous of him. Because you see, what happened was, when Paul came to Rome, a lot of the preachers, they were like, but their nose was put out of joint. You know, we've got this big apostle coming, and we, 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 we used to like being on centre stage. We used to like being in the limelight. And when he got put in prison, they were rejoicing because he'd been put in prison. They were gloating. Oh, now we can be the preachers. Now we can be on the stage. Now we can be in the limelight. And they were hoping that Paul would find that hard. They were wanting to cause trouble for him in the prison. But the truth is this. It was like water off a duck's back for him. See that picture? of water coming off a duck's back. It was, it's like, I don't care if they do that. I don't care if they're jealous and they're preaching and, they, and they're happy I'm in prison. I really don't care. All I care about is that the gospel is going forwards. And I find that challenging. He wasn't territorial. He wasn't, um, I've got to be on stage. I've got to be the preacher. I've got to be the one doing the ministry. He said, I don't care if I shut up in a prison. As long as the gospel's going out, that's my heart. Is that our heart? You don't care who does it, as long as the gospel's going out. You know, he actually probably would have said, I'm very happy to stay here if a hundred preachers start going out. You know, if Tim was stuck in a... I'll keep talking about poor Tim. If he was stuck in a police station... I've arranged his arrest, by the way. <laughs> if Tim was stuck in a police station and the whole of River Church was mobilised and motivated, wouldn't Tim be quite pleased with that? He'd rather probably prefer to stay there. And he, he said, I don't care as long as people, the people are hearing. The one thing that brought Paul joy was people hearing the gospel. Didn't bother him if he wasn't at the centre of it. He was a big-hearted man. You know, um, the chained up one inspired the unchained. Courageous, sorry, courage was contagious. And the timid catch boldness from the brave. Do you know, I always remember Patrick. Where, Patrick's not here today. But Patrick once said in this church, he was talking about, I think, um, something, and he said, I just want what's best for the church and the gospel. And I really admire Pat for saying that, because Pat could have said, I want to do it. I think he was talking about who should lead something, and he said, I just want what's best for the church and the gospel. And I thought, amen, Pat. That was Paul's heart. Right. Let's move on. So he he wasn't worried about the future, whether he would be sidelined 
or whether others would step up into his shoes. He said, I don't care. May many, many more step into my shoes as long as the gospel goes forward. But the other thing that he was not worried about in the future was if he died. Now, is it a real question that challenged me? Are you afraid of death? Now, Paul had a tension. He said he was torn in two directions. Part of him said, I want to die and go to be with Christ. It's far better. And part of him said, but I know I need to stay for the sake of my family. Now, Paul wasn't married. He didn't have a wife and kids, but he had a big family. He did know what it was like to have a family. He had the churches. And Paul had a tension in him. And I just wonder, I I was challenged by this, do we have a tension... If someone said to you, sorry Mark, I hope it doesn't happen, but if someone said to Mark, you're going to die next week, what would Mark's first reaction be? Would it be, oh no, my family, my kids, my wife, Alice might be relieved, but anyway, no, um, oh no, the church, my my future ministry, or would it be, part of it, yes, I'm going to go be with Christ, and part of it, no, but what about the ministry, what about the gospel, attention, because I know for a fact that most people, if you said, if I said, Pete, you're going to die next week, you'd probably go, well, you wouldn't, you're spiritual. But a lot of people, they would go, I don't want to die. Ugh. Death, no thank you. I'm very eager to stay and very unwilling to go. Whereas Paul was eager to go and willing to stay. Now, I know a lot of you are young, so it may not really be very relevant to you. But the point is this. Death asks you a big question. What are you living for? If you're living for money, you don't want to hear about death because you can't take it with you. If you're living for career or job, you don't want, or position even in the church, if you're living for position or position in a job, you don't want to hear about death because it would take that away from you. What are you living for? If you're living for Christ and the spreading of the gospel and honouring Christ, you want to honour Christ and you want the gospel to spread, then death, part of it should say in your heart, this is amazing, I'm going to be with Jesus. And part of it should say, yeah, but there's more work to be done here. And I will miss my kids and my wife. There's a tension. <laughs> you know? Now, you may find this a bit irrelevant, but I want to just say, if I said to you, you're going to die in three days' time, what would your attitude be? Would you be going, oh, my life, no way, I can't. Or would it be part, man, this is exciting, and part, yeah, but I've got my husband, my, the church... Tension. Is there a tension in your heart, or are you just terrified of the thing? Because if you're terrified, it probably means you're not living for the right things. Um, I want to just say that something I once heard Joel say. Joel said this in house group, and it really shocked me at the time. Joel said this, and he wasn't being irresponsible. He said, um, I really envy Christians that die. You know, Joan, I'm so jealous that Joan died. I was like, are you all right? <laughs> he said, well, we're like, you know, She's gone to be in the full presence of Christ. And I I thought to myself, I don't don't think like that. I don't don't want to die, thank you. Now please, don't go away wishing yourself dead. All I'm I'm trying to come across to you is, do you have that tension in your heart like Paul? If you don't, if you're terrified of death, then are you living for Christ? Are you living for the gospel? Because death will be a loss to you. If you're putting family first, family number one, I mean, family, God loves family. If you put your own family first, death is nothing but loss to you. 
I went to a cemetery last week to see a grave of a friend of mine. He um, sadly committed suicide in 1985. And I went to see, just to visit his grave, and I just, looking at it, I realised that for people who live for money, who live for the world, death is just loss. But if you live for Christ, it's gain, sheer gain, sheer gain. Do you know, I heard a story of an old man who loved Jesus and he was dying. Okay, he was old, so he'd lived his life. And someone said to him, what's it like? And he said this, he said, it's painful, but it's delicious. Have you ever heard anyone describe death as delicious? Because he knew where he was going. So, let's just move on to the final slide, or second to last. What were Paul's priorities in life? If we compare ourselves to Paul in this passage, what were his priorities? Number one, the most important thing that brought joy to Paul was that people were hearing the gospel. Spreading the gospel was his number one life work ambition. Is it yours? Let's be honest, is it our life ambition that the gospel is spread? Or are we living for lots of other things, really? And the gospel is a kind of after eight mint on the end, you know? Not the main dinner. That, the second point, I've said this already. Number two, he always wanted to honour Christ. That is, show him to be magnificent in whatever circumstances he faced, in life or death. He didn't want to let his Lord down. Whatever we go through, that's the challenge. Am I there to honour Christ? And he wrote in um, verse 20, he said, um, he says, My deep desire is that I shall never fail in my duty, but especially just now. You see that phrase? Especially just now. He wanted to honour Christ. And the reason for that was because he was about to face the judges, probably. He's going to face judges, he was going to face officials, and he wanted to not let his Lord down. Now, I don't know if you can see that picture. That is a postage stamp from America of four chaplains, uh, sort of vicars, four chaplains and a ship sinking in the ocean. And I want to tell you this story because this is about a man who wanted to honour Christ, like Paul. One of these guys, whose name was Clark, Clark Poling, the sort of guy in the middle there, Clark Poling, he was a chaplain and he was, it was World War II, about 1942, and his mum and dad had been praying for him every day that God would bring him home safe. They used to pray, Lord, bring Clark home. Don't let anything happen bad to him. Please don't harm him. Please let him survive the war. Please bring him home. And Clark one day found out and said to his mum and dad, he said, stop praying that. What do you mean? Stop praying it, mum and dad. Please, can you pray this instead? Can you pray, whether I come home or not, I will honour Christ. And they were like, oh, Really? Okay, son, we'll change the way we pray. So the next day they started to pray, Lord, whether our boy comes home from the war or not, may he honour you. May he do his duty. And you can probably guess what happened by looking at the picture. In 1942, as the troop ship SS Dorchester with 902 soldiers on board got near to the port in Greenland, a U-boat torpedoed it. It's about midnight, the ship went down. Now, many died. Uh, there were not enough life jackets because it was a huge, overfilled troop ship. 
But the four chaplains had their life jackets on, and all the men were given out life jackets. And then there was four men left without life jackets. And the chaplains took off their life jackets, said, here you are, take the life jacket. And he, Clark gave his life jacket to another man who was able to survive the war and swim away. Clark and the other three chaplains went down with the ship, and apparently the, the guy who got his life jacket said they were praying for us, and they were singing hymns even. A bit like the Titanic film, you know? This is a true story. They were singing and praying for us, knowing they were going to die. And this story went all across America and Canada. It went into all the newspapers, and the postage stamp was created to remember the four chaplains. You can look it up on Google. And this man, Clark Poling, he honoured Christ. And he didn't come home from the war. The reason I say that is, is that our heart? I'm challenged by, is it my heart just to honour Christ? Whatever situation I might face. So that was Paul's heart. And then the last two points. Um, Paul wrote a phrase in this passage, uh, to live is Christ. And it's a very strange phrase. Uh, it's in verse 21. To live is Christ. What does that mean? Very odd. If I said to you, to live is Karina, what would you think? <laughs> well, what it means is this. If I said that, it would mean Karina is utterly precious to me, above everything. And when Paul said, to live is Christ, this is what he meant. It simply means that Christ should be more precious, more valuable, more satisfying, more joyful, more boastworthy than anything we could lose at death or anything we now enjoy in life. Now, I know that's a tall order, but God's heart for you and, I, you and me is that Christ becomes the very lodestar, the very precious, more than anything, more than our family, more than our kids, Christ. That was Paul's heart, to live is Christ. I know it's difficult, but that's what God wants. And then the last point, Paul really cared about other people. He really did. If you look at verse, um, I've nearly finished, verse 25, it says, I will stay on with you all to add to your progress and your joy in the faith. Paul's heart was that others progress in the faith. He wanted others to, what made him excited was others going on in God, others uh, getting joy and progress. And I've got to be, I was challenged by this. Is that true of me? Do I really care if, for instance, Chris Box, where is he? Over there. If Chris goes on with the Lord and finds joy and really comes more into Christ, do I really care about that? Do I pray for him? God wants us to think not only on our own things, but on the things of others. So there's Paul's heart. I'm finished. He was a man who wanted the gospel to go forward as his ambition. He was a man who wanted to honour Christ, whatever the circumstances. He was a man where Christ was more important than everything else he had. And he was someone who cared about the progress and joy of others. And my big question to finish is, are we anything like him? <laughs> and are we anything like him? And I want you just to stop now and reflect quietly on this one question I've got on the board. What currently would you say is the number one ambition of your life? You may not be able to answer it. But what's the real ambition of your heart? Do you have one? <laughs> um, I'll let you just reflect on that and then we'll close and I'll, I'll get the band up, we'll sing something.
Okay. So just a few moments reflecting on this and then we'll get the band up and we'll pray. Thank you.